Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Just a little footnote on that, because I don't want to spend time on it, but Melchizedek was kind of just an eternal priest. He kind of was. So a different order from Aaron and the other priests. Jesus' priesthood, different, yet in many ways similar or familiar. Father, please help us as we tuck into this text this evening to feed on your word. That what you wrote to them back there and back then, you'd make real, tangible, powerful to us here now. Lord, speak to us and equip us so that when we go from here, we can live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is about, I think it's about assurance. It's one of the sort of core human conditions, assurance. I think it's why so many people gather or gathered today. We had a number of guests um, here this morning, um, a number of whom actually came by way of, uh, in response to um, the invitation on Tuesday. Thank you so much to those of you who gathered here on Tuesday for presence. We then went out and we invited uh, as many people as we knew who were living in a house where one of these names that Pat mentioned earlier left, uh, give or take, a hundred years ago. And uh, a number of people were quite intrigued, a number of people were quite moved. One person actually posted on Facebook, said they'd had a visit from a lovely couple, my local church, St. Dionys. And uh, she put, put it on Facebook and then contacted us for our website, really touched that as a church we should uh, reach out to our community in that way. And people came. We had people here at the 1030 who uh, hadn't been to church before, one of them uh, living in St. Diana's Road. There was also people meeting uh, and a, a gathering at the, the um, British Legion just here behind me. 
and uh, in different churches, Cenotaph in London, all across the land, across this nation, across our world. Why? Well, partly I would suggest to give thanks for the sacrifice of others, gaining the freedom that we enjoy today. But I wonder whether there's something deeper. It, it, it's almost not articulated, and yet I, I think it's there. It, it's something along the lines of, please God, may that not have been in vain. Please God, these, some of them teenagers and young men, please God, was, was that not in vain? that they just gave their lives for nothing. Please God, the men and women who are serving in the armed forces, in our armed forces or in others as well, in different theatres of war across our nation today, please God, may that not be in vain. We want to know that our lives and the lives of others given sacrificially count. That's not a waste. And, and, and the root of all that is assurance. We, we, we kind of want to know that we know. I mean, it's horrible to be unsure, to be uncertain. In any situation, in a relationship, in a place of work, in a sort of position within a, a group, uh, a network. You like to know that you are who you are and you belong, you're accepted. You... Assurance. And these guys here, uh, they, they wrestled with that assurance. Um, this is a, a generation or two after Jesus has lived. Uh, lived an extraordinary life, just three years. Extraordinary what he'd done in that public ministry. Died a horrible death, raised to brand new life. Uh, various resurrection uh, appearances and instances. And then in a matter of weeks, he's taken by God. He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you see him no more. And uh, the Spirit comes at Pentecost, the movement, the way it was first known as, we, we know it now as the, the Christian faith, followers of Jesus Christ. And for those who'd converted to Jesus Christ from Judaism, it begins to get tough. You see, um, under Roman occupation, Judaism is tolerated. That's fine, you can have your priests, you can have your temple, you can do your sacrifice, you can have your feast days, just don't cause trouble. And the kind of, that was the deal. So the Pharisees and the teachers, they could teach their stuff as long as they just didn't cause trouble. Religious life could go on, but these Christians, you see, they're the ones who are being martyred. We don't read in the first, latter half of the first century, we don't read of Jews being martyred for their faith, we do read of Christians. And so these Hebrews, these Jewish converts to Christianity, they're not so sure. I mean, we like assurance. We want to know, uh, really, this Jesus guy? I mean, centuries of Judaism, two generations of following this guy, Jesus, who I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I know him like I... See, the Jewish objector to this letter and sometimes it helps to read this letter, imagining sort of a Jewish objector in the ears of whoever wrote this. We're not quite sure who it is. And, and at this point, the Jewish objector is saying, look, I can go to the temple. It's just over there. I can see the priest. I can smell the sacrifice. I kind of know that this is the way through mediation that I know God. And I do it on a regular basis. I bring my sacrifice. I bring my offering. And I... I know God. Christians, they just have this, this 
guy from Nazareth who was around for a bit and now he's not. And just a few words and these sort of slight gatherings in different houses and homes and, and then just sort of a hope for the future. I'm not sure that I know. And the writer wants to say, Jesus, <laughs> let us approach God's throne, verse 16, with confidence through Jesus. Jesus better than Moses. Moses led the people out of captivity from Egypt. Jesus leads people out of captivity from sin. Jesus better than Joshua. Joshua leads, and this is what the writer is saying in, in basically the end of chapter 3 and, and 4 before the book we read. Joshua led the people into the promised land and there they had in a kind of concept, rest from their wanderings. But Jesus leads us into God's Sabbath, God's eternal rest. Jesus is better than Joshua. And in a sense here what the writer is saying is Jesus is better than Aaron. Aaron, the high priest of the people, the mediator between God and man, Jesus even better than Aaron. Therefore, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, see Aaron didn't do that, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Look to Jesus for your assurance. Amid the doubts, Amid the alternative possibilities, live slinking back. These, these guys were tempted to backslide. No, fix your eyes on Jesus, our great high priest. How so? Well, verse 9 of chapter 5. Uh, Some though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, here's where the doubt redounds back on the Jews because uh, this high priest is Aaron, whoever it is, his, his successors. He's like one of us. You see in verse, um, uh, verse 2 of chapter 5, the high priest able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. That's why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of his people. How can I be sure that actually these sin, these, these sin offerings, the work of the priest is efficacious? He's just a weak guy like me. How do I know? And the writer says, yes, because there's a greater, there's a better high priest, it's Jesus, who once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation, not just salvation for a while, not just until the next sacrifice or the next ritual. Eternal salvation having been made perfect through his submission to test and suffering, verses seven and eight. He learned, as the Bible says, he learned obedience. Not that he was, Jesus was disobedient. It was that actually here he was having, if you like, his full obedience called out of him through test and trial. He'd never had to experience obedience at such an intensity as that last week of his life, that last 24 hours, Gethsemane, where he's abandoned and uh, betrayed, where he's beaten up and scourged, where he's falsely accused and eventually dies a horrific death. Oh, he's been tested and he's still obedient. The obedience called out of him, perfected obedience, if you like. And as a result, we can trust him as our great high priest, the writer says. We, 
here's the Jewish objector again, it, it just in the ears of the right, well, if he's so perfect, if he's gone through everything, you know, he's, he's so much better than Aaron, Aaron was kind of sinful like the rest of us, Aaron, all the other priests have been fallen, but Jesus is this perfect high priest, then, then how do I know that he really knows? How do I know that he kind of connects with me? How do I know that he really knows what life is like? And that's why the writer says, to that objection, if you like, in chapter 4 and verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is our great high priest. He's better than any priest before. He's the one to look to because he's fully able to sympathize with what we're going through. That's why the writer says, let's approach God with confidence because our high priest, Jesus, who enables us to come into God's presence is fully able to sympathize with us. We don't have a high priest unable to feel sympathy. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. C.S. Lewis, uh, writing about this, <clears throat> puts it like this. He says that actually you, you never really know the power of temptation until you've fully stood up to it. And actually that's the flaw in our human condition. You see, we, we fall under temptation. We'll resist for a certain time and then we, we're overcome. We give in to temptation. And so as a result, we never really know the full strength of the temptation itself. It's a bit like, for example, if you want to know how strong the wind is, you will only really know how strong the wind is if you commit to walking into it. If you, if you kind of cower down or lie down on the ground, just let the wind blow over you, 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 you won't actually know how strong it is. So actually, every single one of us, because of our fallen state, we don't know the full extent of the strength of temptation, except Jesus because he did not sin. He withstood temptation. And so he, by definition, knows the strength of temptation more than any of us. He, more than any of us, is able to sympathize with what we're going through. It's like if we're facing test or trial, we've been really sort of dogged for our faith. Well, so too Jesus. He knows exactly what you and I are going through. That's what makes him the great high priest, the better high priest, able to sympathize with what we're going through. Jesus fully faced temptation because he didn't give in. He does know what we're going through and that gives us full assurance. Jesus perfect in his sympathy and secondly, finally, Jesus perfect in his Sacrifice, perfect in his sacrifice. Look with me at uh, chapter five and verses seven and eight. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Probably an allusion particularly to uh, the last week of his life and the last 24 hours, that uh, agony in Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, in other words, perfection completed, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. 
Jesus, perfectly able to sympathize, offering perfect sacrifice, not only in his life, but also in his death, in order that he can be the perfect mediator between us and God. And so that deep heart cry in each and every one of us, maybe it's called out for particular people on particular days, Remembrance Sunday, perhaps one of them. But for any of us going through times of test or trial, going through difficulty, times when we're tempted to slink back rather than to step in for God, the writer of the Hebrews says, Verse 16, chapter 4, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of our high priest so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every single one of us, we will face times of need, instance during the day or maybe days in the week or maybe weeks throughout the year, maybe months even years. And the writer says, we come to God through our perfect, sympathetic, sacrificial high priest. The Jewish ejector, he's still there. Are you serious? <laughs> do, do you not know the kind of whole, the, the way in which humans come into God's presence? Just again, centuries of well-honed tradition. It was, it's just one day a year. And it's not just any priest, it's, it's, it's the, the high priest. And, and then he goes into the, the holy of holies, he alone. You know, um, just the histories and archaeologists have uncovered at the time that the practice became to tie a rope or a cord around the ankle of the high priest as he went through the curtain into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. Because they knew what that meant, a holy God. And they knew that they were a sinful nation. And the priest, representing their sin, goes into the presence of God. Will he survive? It was a very real question. Or will God's fierce anger and purity burn up the sin? Represented in the, in the, and present in the high priest. So they, they tied a rope because they dare not go in themselves. And, and if literally he was just destroyed there and then on the spot, they could, they could pull him out. To the Jewish, are you, are you serious? To, 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 to draw near with God, to, to approach God with confidence? With confidence? You should, this is fear and trembling. It's once a year, boys. And the writer says, yeah, because of Jesus. You can approach God today, now. You can enter his rest now. You can know forgiveness of sin now. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then... Approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What a great God. 
What an amazing saviour. What a friend. Our great high priest. Amen.